Welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show. Welcome, welcome to the Meeple Syrup Show, where designers discuss design. We're on episode 107, and we're doing questions from a hat. And uh, we have uh, uh, the same old gang rounded up. Yeah, that's right. We got Dylan Kirk rocking it from Paris. Hi, how's it going? And we have Sed with a hat. Yeah, I got a hat. This is this is, uh, this is like seeing Sed with a beard or something. I wear hats all the time, just not like baseball caps a lot. I used to wear baseball caps all the time, but this is like a, a team mystic baseball cap, so it's like at least somewhat cool. I don't know. It's my kids. I don't. I don't nice, I don't know. nice. Representing dad hat. Dad hat. Love it. <laughs> Awesome. So, why, Sen, why don't you actually uh, do the breakdown of what our show is going to be all about, and then we can do a little quick recap and jump right into it. Cool. Okay. So, um, today we asked all sorts of people on all sorts of forums to answer to ask us questions that we would just randomly pick from this very same hat that's on my head and answer questions for you guys to kind of get a sense of what we think of certain certain hot button topics in the industry today. And if we're lucky, we may also have some special guests jumping in on every now and then. So just be aware that people may jump into the feed and they may just say hi while we're in the middle of something, but that's cool because they're cool. They were invited, it's okay. Uh, and we're gonna go through the hat uh, as much as we can. We've got about an hour and a bit uh, before we have to go. Uh, you know, pick up my kids or whatever. No, actually, the, it's it's raining, so they took the bus home. And um, yeah, so we're just gonna get started. I think we might get uh, Doug Base from Meriday Games coming on. Jonathan Lavalley might pop in. Peter Vaughn might pop in. Rob Davio might pop in. So a bunch of people are most likely um, gonna show up at some point in time. I might have to do some technical stuff, but let's get started uh, and and get Dylan and. Daryl answering some questions. There might be some specifically for Daryl or me or Dylan, but we'll get some people started. Oh, hey, look, there's Jonathan Lavely, right? Our first drop in. Hey. Oh, Jonathan. All right, Jonathan, actually, then this one goes to you. Okay. Perfect timing. Saved us. Perfect Saved timing. Us from okay. All right. Woo. Jonathan, um, this question is from, <laughs> it's from Stephen Sauer. Uh, so, based on some recent discussions that we've all had um, on a certain private forum uh what do you each think makes a good pitch video how long how much gameplay um do you want to cover the entire game or just get a glimpse should it be voice over or speaking directly to the camera when you're on screen what do you think jonathan go uh easy it's uh just like an in-person pitch right um it is you know you want the beginning to be very quick get you a good understanding of what's going on uh, and you want voiceover because the qualities you can control a lot better than unless you have a good setup to, to record your voice. Uh, and then what you want to do is you want to hit, after you get them in with the pitch and kind of the general thing at the beginning, which shouldn't be, more, it's like a Kickstarter video. You don't want it to be more than a minute, two minutes to start. And then, you know, you can have a longer section at the end. But again, you don't want to go over the whole game. You want to hit the highlights because they don't, like anything else, they have a, a lot of demands on their time. And if it's too long or if it's too involved and it starts going into all the nitty-gritty details of what you're doing, uh, it will. Th they'll come a point in time, they're like, I can't, I'm done, right? And, and so that, that, I think that's a detriment to you uh, if, you, if they, they go on too long. 
that answers the question enough. It does. It does. And and Mr. Dillon, what do what do the French have to say about this? Well, their mics first have to be turned on. Yes, so muted. <laughs> <laughs> Mute is a completely different verb. What are you talking about? Oh no. <laughs> Well, that makes it that makes a heck of a lot of sense. I mean, it's like writing. It's, it's like writing. You wanna you don't wanna hide the um, the good stuff for last. These are people with limited amount of time and limited amount of attention span. And the fact is, you put the good stuff up first. Or you put the hook up first, and then you add on further information. If you can keep the attention span of the people who are watching longer than that, then wonderful. But you need to know you at least got your hook in. So it's an it's a really excellent point. Mm -hmm. Daryl. Well, I'll just add like. Uh, if I was viewing it, I would not care about like putting a ton of time into like special effects or screen stuff, whatever. What, what, no star wipes. No, no star. Well, a star wipe might get me once in a while. But but what I really mean is like I don't even really need to see you. I just need to see the game, the components. Like if you just do kind of the rock straight down. I mean, sure, if you want to do twenty seconds of, you know, you talking at the beginning, but really just stick a camera on the bits, move some stuff around, talk about the game, voiceover. That's what she said. I, I just had to say it. Sure. <laughs> Stick a camera on the bits. Come on. Go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, so my advice is just to uh, keep it short and succinct and as snappy as possible. Script it. Like, seriously, spend a good 30 to 60 minutes before you do it, planning it out. Otherwise, you're going to mumble and you're going to stumble and it's going to sound really unprofessional when you get there. So just just plan it a little bit. Um, I do these things called Pekachka presentations, which are six minutes and 40 seconds, 20 seconds per slide. Um, and they're very, very, very snap, concise, put together well, high visual, low text, maximum impact, because the audience is focused on me and the visual instead of reading off the slides. And for a teacher, that's actually really important um, that they get the information straight from the source as opposed to reading off the slide. When you put stuff and words on slides, people tend to want to actually read them and finish. And if you go and change your slide before they get done, they get all antsy and, and, and really anxious. So don't do that to people. Um, if you're going to use a really quick format, make sure that the transitions are smooth and seamless and high visual, high, high, high visual. That's the whole point of a video. If it was just audio, then we wouldn't need the video part. So really script it, use that tool to your advantage, get close in on the bits, show the parts moving, um, and really focus on what the highlights are. Like Jonathan said. Um, hey, there's there's Adam Arostica. Hey, how's it going? Good. Are you are you actually? Oh, there you. Oh, we can't see you. You don't have a webcam. Oh, there we go. There we go. Great, Adam. Beautiful. I'm gonna ask you a question. Stephen Sauer is asking you about pitch videos, and I know you're not really on the pitching side of things, but what would catch your attention or what keeps your attention for like Kickstarter videos or a pitch video uh, that a designer might send a publisher? Um, I might actually be the worst person to ask because I completely ignore Kickstarters. I dislike them. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so that, that question from the hat. Nailed it. We're just going to throw that out and we will no longer have that. Oh, we just question. <laughs> All right, so this question is from Jeffrey Villanueva, and I just have GV here because uh, we, I didn't have time to print your question out, but we have it right here, sir. Okay. He asks, um, and we'll go to you first on this one, Adam. Oh, this is actually perfect for Adam. Adam, how do you go about designing rule books? What makes a good rule books? Do you have any favorite rules 
rule books for games that you've worked on? And do you have any favorite rule books from other games? Adam is actually one of the translators for multiple companies. So this is in his wheelhouse. Let's go. Um, what are you looking for in a rule book? Um, uh, a, a clear objective right from the beginning. Um, like um, rules that don't uh, don't repeat themselves unnecessarily and that do not waste words. Um, if something is repeated, it needs to be repeated for a very specific reason. Um, and uh, and you sh uh, rules should always strive to use as few words as possible. The longer a reader is reading your rule book, uh, the longer it takes for them to get to your game, and the more confused they are when they get to your game. Um, some of the rule books I've worked on, and uh, uh, and I've had to work on a, f a fairly long time, are those that continue continually get shortened and shortened and refined and refined. Um, until they cannot get any shorter without actually losing content. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, we just finished up the rules for Flick'em Up Dead of Winter, and I'm very happy with those. We've turned a lot of fat from uh, the original Flick'em Up rules um, uh, to, to bring, and, and it's, it's, it can be very tough because uh, there are, uh, although the, the, the core parts of the, of the rulebook are quite intuitive, there are a lot of exceptions to a very open world. Um, but probably the one I'm proudest of is uh, Hawaii, um, uh, simply because uh, uh, the the old rulebook um, uh, that uh, Rio Grande had was uh, it had a it had a number of omissions or or rules in weird places. Like there was a rule about about who, who gets points at the, the end for something, but it's, it was actually listed just in an example. So uh, when I went to go translate that, because uh, Z-Man picked it up and they couldn't just use the existing English English rules, I had to take the original German and and rewrite them from scratch. Um, but what I did, because it was such an old game, uh, at that point, it'd be a couple years, a couple years old, I went on to the board gaming forums, read the rules, uh, questions people had to make, uh, to make sure that all of those were very clearly indicated um, uh, without adding necessarily extra rules, but just simply to um, make sure that the language used in explaining the game in the first place uh, was clear enough so that those questions would be answered, uh, answered along the way. And uh, it came out, Greg Daigle, the designer, got a copy of it and he sent me a message, or actually sent as uh, Z-Man a message, which got back to me, well, with how impressed he was, it's like I wrote the original rules, and these are way better than mine. I and I designed the game, and I was, I was very, very happy to hear that. Um, That's awesome. That is awesome, Gerald. What about you, bud? Uh, well, I would definitely echo whatever Adam says because <laughs> he's a better rule writer than I. Um, uh, one one thing that I would emphasize personally uh, that has been uh, significant is thinking through illustrations being really meaningful with the graphic design weaving in with the with the word. So if you're finding something that's difficult to articulate, an, an illustration may be the exact tool you need pairing with those words so that someone can visually uh, catch on to those words quickly. And instead of, like Adam was saying, using a lot of words to try to explain the concept, be specific, be concrete, and then with a visual, you can uh, be concise as well and probably use the same amount of space, but instead, short, amount of words, a nice illustration, gets right to the point. So that would be one thing that I would add. Great. Dylan, your turn. Dude, I'll say nothing about words. I'd say tons about layout. Just the fact that you have 
color codes, indents, all the, all the right stuff to organize your ideas on a page. And I, I keep on going back to the homesteaders rules because I love them. Basically, hire Ariel is what you need to do. Um, layout <laughs> is so important, just the visual element to understanding how the words are grouped together, what boxes go where, what things need to be highlighted. Uh, there's, an, there's a reason why graphic design and art are two separate things, and there's a reason why within graphic design there's illustration, there's, there's layout, there's all these different types of specialties. Spend the money on the layout when you're doing a polished rule set, because where the eye goes is their entire bailiwick they are going to draw the attention to the correct rules. You got to make sure you got the right rules, right words there, but holy crap, make sure that they're in the right place on the page. That's, that's what I have to say. Layout is a one. Mm -hmm. Great. And John, Jonathan. <laughs> I do and you did. <laughs> um, I, 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 all I, these French people on the show. I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the 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 again. I'm not going to add anything to that uh, except for maybe one actual writing trick. Uh, Margaret Atwood always said, "Read read everything you write out loud." So if you are you are doing it yourself for the first time, read them out loud and take your time so you don't accidentally you know just put in what you think it should be there. And you will find very much when you say something, you'll be like, "Oh, that made no sense." Also. Uh, the quick story for me is the first rule book I ever wrote. I forgot to put in how the game ends. That's awesome. Uh, for me, um, Belfort stands out as um, like seriously a magnum opus of Josh Capel's work in terms of just how clear and concise you can be. Um, we follow a really good rule right now. It's kind of our ABC rule. Um, Jay and I really like the uh, the movie. Um, and well, that's, with ABC, it would, it would always be closing. But for us, it's always be cutting. And we start cutting rules out as we go through. If it doesn't make sense, if I have to explain it twice, if nobody remembers to play with that rule ever, it's gone. And so less is more often, as Adam was talking about. Uh, so yeah, if you need to hire somebody to do your editing, I would, oh, here's a funny story. This is a super funny story because it's really timely. It happened last night. I actually got to yell, stop the presses and literally mean it. And the reason why is because we had an error in our rules uh, and we had to stop the press in China um, before they printed them. Wow. Yeah, and it was like danger zone, like five minutes from printing. Uh, and we said, no, 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 no. Um, because some rule that we had changed the wording of in one place, we forgot to change in another place. And we had actually gone through this with like four people, but never a professional editor. Mm -hmm. And so something I've often talked to Josh about is like, hey, Josh, what would you charge for, you know, just, just the rule book? Mm -hmm. Because I know not all publishers can hire Josh to do the illustration, the graphic design, all that stuff because he's kind of the quadruple threat when you think about it. But just the rule book, because I often just need that person to go through it one more time. My eyes get really tired of reading the same thing over and over. So hire an editor. Uh, Doug, Doug is in the feed. Doug, if you can unmute yourself and introduce yourself, that'd be awesome. You got to unmute your mic, unmute your mic. Still mute, still mute. Uh, control D, or go all the way to the top. And you can see that your microphone is muted or not. If you can get that, that'd be great. I'm going to, uh, oh, hey, Adam, what do you charge for just rule books? Uh, just rule books? Um, 
Right now, it, it really depends on how much time it takes. Uh, uh, my standard rate right now is uh, 20 bucks an hour. Um, I, at, first I was just, at first, I was doing it for free. The first rule book I did, I did uh, Asante. Um, and uh, I thought, oh, yeah, that's cool. I'll get a free game out of it. But then I realized how much time it took. And, uh, and uh, the, the, my contact over at Z-Man clearly saw what I was able to produce. And so then we were able to work out rates that, uh, as my as uh, as my work improved um, consistently, I was we worked out better and better rates. Um, right now, I do most of the work I do is uh, with Plan B. I don't do as much as I'd like to simply because I've got a full time job. Otherwise, that's uh, it's rather demanding. But uh, the one thing I wanted to add to the rulebook is if if companies can afford to um, uh, to have someone have fresh eyes on the rulebook, just as just as Sen was saying. You will have fresh eyes, whether it's another rules editor um, or a play group who's able to um, who's able to take those rules in for the first time, learn to play. Because uh, I I realize that as I go through several revisions of a rule book, there are there are parts of the game that I become familiar with, and uh, I take for granted what is what what is. Uh, uh, what is known about the game and what you get out of reading a rule book. Um, uh, because at a certain point, I'm unable to ask productive questions about whether a rulebook is uh, is sufficient in uh, to learn the game or not. Right, um, so. and that's a really good point. That you know, when you're talking to Greg and the designers, often are too close to the game to remember what rules really need to be explained and how to explain it. Um, we're going to move on. Uh, we're going to move to say hi to Doug. Doug. Can you unmute your mic and let us? There you go. Yeah, let us know who you are. <laughs> How are you? Um, Good. This is not Doug Bass. I'm the publisher, uh, Meriday Games. Um, the man behind Meriday Games, and uh, I've only published one game to this point. It's uh, Garden Dice. It came out in uh, late 2012, and <clears throat> currently got some more. Um, in the pipeline, but uh, we're still in the development stages with those. Yeah, but we you, are. Were, uh, you were talking about Josh Capel and uh, uh, Belfort earlier, and um, I used Josh for Garden Dice, and the inspiration for that was seeing Belfort and how well it had been done. So um, I got that game and immediately got in touch with Josh about doing Garden Dice. Yeah, that, that guy is, is, like I said, he's a quadruple threat. I'm going to ask you, uh, Doug, the question. It's kind of funny because you just almost answered it. This one's from AJ Brandon. Um, and Doug can answer this first, and then everybody else can go through it. What, what have been your inspirations for the games you've created? Which of your games uh, was the hardest to develop and why? And uh, we'll ask some of the other questions from AJ to other people. But you can start with that one, Doug. Um, what have you been your inspirations, and what games have been the hardest to develop, and why? Not just public. Um, well, I, I guess um, some of the games that have been hardest to publish were ones that um, I had a particular theme in mind, and trying to get the mechanics to reflect the theme. Um, I, I would come up with mechanics sometimes, but they wouldn't necessarily um, match up with the theme 100%, and I found that found that to be challenging. Mm -hmm. Okay. And at what time, at what point did you know you had to radically change the design of a game 
or did you just give up and shelf it? Um, sometimes I shelve the games um, when I'm uh, really uh, gotten to a point where I can't, it's like a roadblock and I can't get past it. Um, I, as far as you, you know, when you've gotten to that point, when you just um, don't want to play it anymore and uh, don't want to put any more time into it. And then all of a sudden other game ideas start coming up into your head and you start to divert your attention to those. Mm -hmm. Perfect. Daryl, the next question I'm going to pose to you because it's actually very fitting. Okay. What are you looking? Oh, there, there it is. There's card dice. Good stuff. That's that is. It's actually a great little game. I love that game. Um, so kudos to Doug for that. Daryl, how do you prototype with an app in mind? Obviously, the <laughs> app has features either necessary or very important to the game. So how do you design or develop before the app exists? And how do you pitch to a design that kind of design to a publisher? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can definitely talk to that. So you got the box. You got the box. Um, not down here. Someone was playing it upstairs yesterday. Uh, but yeah, so I have an upcoming game called Shopping Time uh, with Mercury Games. It uses app integration. You need an app for the game. Um, you technically could play without, but it's most fun and most optimal with the app. Uh, the way I prototyped it, so the idea here is if you've ever seen kind of like it's a mix of like say Price is Right, Supermarket Spree, and then like different game modes. Like if you could play like different versions, so like closest to a certain price without going over, or like uh, bundle price, you know, in your in your grocery basket, whatnot. The way we prototyped it was I actually took a point of sale program for Steven Sauer's store, um, added a bunch of items in his store that were just actually my cards, printed out like SKUs and then stuck them onto cards so that you were scanning these cards that were actually like items in the store, and then just you got your grand total running a, a POS off, this, off of a phone. And what we did was we rigged it up that we covered the spot where it was ringing in the different amounts, so you only saw the total at the end. So we had like a physical <laughs> sticker on that then you could not see each item. You can't learn the items, but you would learn the grand total. So that's how I pitched it. Um, and then thankfully, uh, and I'll, I, I think I'll pass this to Sen, uh, we had a, a mutual friend who does, uh, um, some programming, does, um, apps. And, uh, and so he joined on to the project, not only made the app for my game, uh, but also then worked on a game by the Bamboozle Brothers. So I don't know if Sen wants to jump on that first, or I know Dylan has something to share as well. Yeah, Dylan, why don't you share your point first and then I'll continue. Well, I I just had something very briefly. When I was when I was in Shanghai, there was a, a guy who was going to be bra branching from uh, kind of game clubs and game cafes into publishing, and basically he sat me down one day and he's like, "Look, I've got this kind of icy chip reader thing, and we really want to build stuff for it because like app games are going to be the next big thing." And like just having a bunch of people sitting around and looking at this tech and saying like, "Well." you can't just start with the tech. Like you can't make something just because the tech is shiny. And I, I feel often that that's what happens, especially at the beginning of, of any given uh, movement in, in, well, anything, but games especially. The tech is there and so you want to use it. Well, if you're thinking about app integration, you got to think about the game first and then actually develop the app later. Not, you know, not, not think that you've got to develop an app just because the tech is there. That's, that's all I wanted to say. 
No, that's a really good point. Like the the tech should be secondary to the gameplay, right? Gameplay always first and foremost, the most important thing. Not the miniatures. Sorry, Simon. Not not uh, you know the artwork. Uh, sorry to all the illustrators out there. The gameplay is actually the most important thing. That anyways we focus on as the designers. Um, for us and Zombie Slam, which is another game coming up from Mercury Games, uh, which is app integrated or driven. Really, the game, we, we actually, it was a children's game that we invented that was played with cards. And we changed it to app integrated because it became more seamless. And we could get more immersion with it. We changed it to zombies. Um, I don't know why, just because. And we recorded something like 10,000 um, snippets of, of, of vo voiceovers for the app to, you know, everybody has characters. The characters talk and they all say different things and the order is always different. Well, I mean, like, obviously, if you play the game 10,000 times, you'd hear the same things over. But the idea being that the app adds more to the game than just an engine to play the game, in our case, because it had to. Uh, you could play the game with just one person being the reader and calling out the cards. But we wanted to, A, keep everybody involved in the game, not have a reader, and draw people into the game a little bit deeper. Um, and so we used an app to do that. And I'm actually going to be writing the music at some point in the next week, I hope, I think. And Eric Rowe is the um, uh, game artisan from Vancouver who does the apps for Daryl and myself as well. So great guy, really solid developer. Um, Doug, I want to ask you this question because it was asked for me, but I want to ask you because that's something that you're doing right now is working on a prototype for designing a dexterity game. How do you design prototypes for dexterity games or games with unique components? What are you doing? Hello. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Doug's not there. Doug's trying to fix his phone again. Uh, Daryl, did you have a point about the the app thing? Sorry, I forgot. Oh, no, it's all good. I'll just jump back in real quick. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, a couple things. One is that you might find, uh, because there's a lot of bleed over and crossover in designer world with people that have skill sets or have friends that have skill sets with building apps, there seems to be a, a pretty solid uh, crossover there. So you may find someone that can help. Um, and that's a great way to do some co-working is designing a game and then finding someone else that has a different skill set than you. And uh, an example where I found a lot of that crossover is at jam events. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, for instance, in the Waterloo region, we do a lot of the Game Institute. does uh, jam days three times a year, sometimes four times a year, uh, hosted at University of Waterloo. And you get a lot of students that um, love making um, – digital stuff, whatever that is, but they don't really have maybe the core when it comes to game design and some of the mechanisms in place. So this is a great way where game designers can work together with other people that are maybe AI designers or, or you know, some type of interface uh, where together you can actually make something pretty awesome that by yourself neither of you could do. So just yeah. wanted to give that plug. Yeah, Jonathan? Yeah, um, because just to kind of uh, tack on to Daryl's point there, um, you know, um, design for video game or app is different than design for board game. And while there is some crossover and like the, the some of the fundamental core ideas are, you know, work, uh, understanding the limitations of what the app can do and, and what, the, what the, the language is and all that kind of stuff is a great kind of thing to know 
So you don't come in with, I want to do this. And the person going, you, you go up to who codes goes, wait, whoa, hold on there. That's actually like this much when you want this much, right? And understanding that, because I know, um, uh, I mean, because I've also done some video design work. And I remember one time I got to do a game called uh, L3K. And uh, they had this great game, but they wanted to add story to it. And they're like, we want to do Romance of the Three Kingdoms. I'm like, whoa, just hold on there. That's a book like this, and your game is about this big, <laughs> right? So you, there's no way, like, you got to find, you know, it's understanding the scope and understanding how things translate all across is, is just also, it's a nice thing to have if you want to, you know, start looking yourself for that, that kind of app, if, you don't, if you're not working with a company who has those contacts and, and those, those resources. Right. So moving on to prototyping for dexterity games. Uh, so this helps. This is my drill press, my tabletop drill press. I don't have a big workshop to to run a full drill press, uh, but I have miter saws and things like that to cut pieces, um, drills, etc. So when I'm prototyping for dexterity games, that's pretty much what I'm doing. I'm cutting wood, a lot of it. I would like to get better at that, um, but it's a skill that I don't have time to actually invest in. So I buy a lot of things. I buy a lot of parts, and then I, I cut them into different shapes. If you're looking for tools to work with wood on a fine scale, like small stuff, so coping saws, uh, a, a Dremel tool, uh, because an, like a real size, a big size miter saw, like a table miter saw or a router, will actually destroy uh, really small pieces of wood. It'll just chew it right up. Uh, and so to work on a fine piece, you need high speed rotation, but small bits. And so I find the Dremel to be a really good alternative. Um, it's not as, you know, sexy as having the big chop saw go down, but it, it works. It does the point. It does. It gets the job done. Uh, Doug, did you, are you able to unmute now? Great. So how are you doing yeah. your dexterity games? I am. Uh... I'm at the office right now, so it's kind of loud. That's okay. Um, what was it? What was the question? So, when you are making dexterity games, how are you prototy prototyping them? Um, well, I'm actually purchasing the parts. I don't have uh, any of that woodworking equipment you mentioned, and um, I had asked somebody, but they were using a a table saw, like you mentioned, and it just obliterated the pieces. Right. Right. So. Right. Um, the latest uh, prototype components I'm uh, ordering from Spiel Material in Germany. Uh, yes, they, they they have really quality parts. So all, all the discs and stuff that I get usually are from them. You're right. Cool. Um, moving yeah. on. Let's let's move on. Uh, Kevin Carmichael asks a question to us all. Has game design game design game design changed how you problem solve outside of games or how you view the world? How, has it affected what you believe to be effective reward systems when addressing social issues? Dylan, we'll start with you because you like to talk about this stuff. Holy crap, yes. <laughs> Um, actually, it, it's kind of part and parcel with a, a whole lot of other philosophies that I like to I like to work on. So I like I like systems a lot. I like systems design a lot. Uh, and I tell you, board games are like the greatest possible uh, try, like testing field for for systems. And I remember talking on Oren's wall a little while back about um, this uh, article that he posted about. Uh, 
escalator design. And uh, this engineer perspective of people are using this tool wrong. It's like, no, no, users don't use things wrong. They're just badly designed. Uh, the, the idea is like, things are gonna be used in a certain way. User experience happens in a certain way. People uh, take part in systems in a certain way. If you want a really good primer on it, I'd read Donella Meadows. Uh, her article, Dancing with Systems, is absolutely brilliant. Donella Meadows is, so far as I'm concerned, a secular saint. Her approach to systems is amazing, and she was taken to us far too early, taken from us far too early. Uh, but read Dancing with Systems, and uh, really, really absorb it. And then I take stuff like that, and I try to apply it at work, managing large teams of people, uh, you know, wherever. Uh, I love people who speak up and tell me that the system's not working. But as soon as they speak up, they have to make a solution. So they realize that if they speak up, then they have to actually come to the table with something or they're going to be asked to you know, develop something for me. All of these little, uh, these little things that you can build into a system that in effect, you're just building a payout matrix. You realize that you're not supposed, you shouldn't be developing rules per se. You're developing a payout matrix that should guide player behavior. And the, the player behavior itself should mean that you'll, like guiding player behavior by using that payout matrix means that you'll need less rules because people will be guided by their own, their own self-interest. Uh, so yes, holy crap, it's, it's in, Everything that I do, game design's in absolutely everything that I do. So the answer is yes. <laughs> John, you had a point. Uh, yeah, no, I, I again, I, I love that kind of thing. That when uh, you know we talk about design, because uh, like, like how also in, in the way how how like game design fails uh, in when you introduce people, right? And like how how you know like people are like, oh, we just need to do this one thing, and I'm like, well, you give me a system, you give me a design, and I will find people who will exploit it. Right, um, but uh, I just wanted to bring up one other uh, book that people should check out. Um, Elizabeth, uh, God, I'm going to mess up her last name just because I don't know where where it's at right now. But Elizabeth Sempat Shoemaker, uh, she goes by Two Scooters on Twitter. Uh, she uh, came up with Empathy Engines, which is designing, uh, basically doing game design with with emotion and and like 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 empathy and thought, uh, and so it's particularly um, a really good book and it's something I recommend for people who are interested in design. Uh, uh, design is a social uh, activity and a social engagement. And with that, I have to jet, but it's been great. Talk to everyone later. Thanks very much, Jonathan Lavely. Uh, we also have with us new to the feed, we have Rob Davio, uh, Mr. Legacy himself, and also with, rest. is it Restoration Games? Restoration Games, that's correct. Yeah. So Stop Thief is coming to my doorstep at some point, and I'm so happy. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it'll be uh, August, I believe. Wow, I'm super happy. That's even better. And we also have Kevin Riley of, of Aeon's End fame um, in the feed as well. So we're going to ask them some questions. All right. Um, a question from the hat. This is a question from Niles. Niles, who is on the feed right now. So um, here's a good question for Rob. Rob, hidden but trackable information. When is it worthwhile to use, and when it should be? When should it be avoided? What do you think? Um, 
Yeah, I, I'm just trying to wrap my head around it so I don't start talking and then figure out what I'm going to say. <laughs> um, it's interesting because some people really like hidden information. Like some people like card counting. Card counting, like from a deck of cards, is hidden yet trackable information. And you're not going to be a good trick-taking player if you don't have some sort of skill to do that. Um, I, th I think the interesting thing is what experience you're trying to get out of your players. If you are making a game where the real path to victory is through hidden information and, and being able to track it, track it, you're going to attract people who can juggle that in their head or who will slow down play that they've seen and casual beat players will be left by the wayside. Um, I think... I think you would use it if you want to make a game that's going to get a bit cerebral, is going to get a bit quiet, is going to get kind of slowed down a bit as people parse it and try to figure out what they know and what they don't know, um, which is just going to have a different sort of feel around the table than something that's a little faster and a little more casual. That's my off-the-cuff answer. That, that is an excellent answer, and I, I Thank also you. agree. I, I can stay. Yeah, you can stay. All right. Uh, Kevin, um, if you unmute your mic, Niles has a question for you. Niles asks you, uh, for new designs, at what point can you tell if the idea is worth pursuing or maybe shelving it? What do you think? Wow, that's a tricky question. So the first thing is the scope of the design is incredibly important. Let's say you're making a game on the scale of Ku or Hanabi. You should be able to tell within probably the first weeks or maybe even the first couple of days whether it's a reasonable idea. But let's say you're designing something like Gloomhaven or Terra Mystica, because of how long it takes just to iterate through you know, one set of, of gameplay and one set of rules, it's going to take you way longer to find out whether or not it's really a, a good idea or not. Um, and the follow-up kind of is, as long as you're willing to rebuild an idea, you can make most things work. Like, so, so with Aeon's End, we started and rebuilt the entire game like a few times in pretty significant ways and and some of the ideas and lessons that we learned stuck around and as long as you're willing to do that you can carry an idea for a very long way you know you make you're like okay let's make a hanabi like game you try some variations of it and does it work you think of what you learned so far you scrap everything and you start again where to me that doesn't feel like throwing out the idea as much as trying a new approach for it Okay, so more like an evolution rather than a garbage and start a game. And yeah. I guess, you know, with things, well, you mentioned Gloomhaven and Rob for you with legacy games. Um, like, when did you know that the legacy thing was working? Uh, I knew it when I, you know, did it with Risk Legacy and I had people in my office who were game designers and had been game designers for a while and they finished one game. And they had like another meeting to go to and they went, eh, do you want to play another game instead of go to a meeting? Like, I want to see what happens next. And it was like people who really usually, you know, at Hasbro, like, can you play a game? And they play, okay, that's good, thanks. And they're just jetting off. It's like a box to check. And they were excited. And I think they played five in a row. Um, and I was like, okay, all right. They're playing five in a row of risk. Yeah, right. And I'm like, okay, there's something here worth uh, – worth continuing with. That was the moment for me. But, you know, I got a whole shelf of stuff back there of ideas that maybe I'll get back to someday, maybe not. Maybe I'll just pick them up. It's that fine line between it's stuck and I need to unstick it or it's just not that great and no matter how hard I work on it, it's going to be a B minus. And is it worth taking the time to do that? And it's, it's a really tricky thing to figure out because it's always exciting to try something new that has no problems, but they all end up with problems at some point. Right, right, right. 
And I guess that's what development is all about. And Isaac Shalev asked a question that nicely bridges into this. I'll, I'll pass this to Dylan and Daryl. Uh, and then Kevin and Rob, you can answer as well. What are some specific techniques you use to drive design forward when you reach a point when the game is good, but it doesn't really feel great or it feels like it's missing something? What do you think, Daryl? Um, I either cut massive things just to see if I miss them, or, or I try a new theme. And then oh, see interesting. That. So those would be my two, is I either do massive, massive cuts, see if I miss it, or, uh, or try something else and see if that breeds some new ideas. Cool. Dylan? See, I do the opposite. Uh, cutting, cutting is always good. Cutting is always good. But uh, whereas Daryl would try a different theme, I would try a different mechanic. Uh, the, the thing that I'm trying to get across is the experience. So when you're going to do something on a map, try doing it completely with cards. You know, if you're going to do something, you know, dexterity wise, try to do it completely, uh, with some, just choose a completely different medium to produce the exact same experience. Okay. And that's like that's mind blowing. Once you, if you think that's impossible, wait, <laughs> wait. I've got something. And then it's it's really interesting. Neat. And Kevin, how do you get past those hurdles? Mm, so it depends how urgent the project is. There's a number of small games that I've been working on and off for a while. And when we get stuck on them, it's basically just take a break. Come back to it in you know a week, two weeks, a month. And usually you have a fresh idea. You have a, a new perspective on the old problems. When it's something that you don't have the luxury of taking that amount of time off from, then it's time to really like make a checklist. What is working? What isn't working? What feels good? What isn't feeling good? Cut out everything that seems like it might not be working even a little bit and, and try a new approach. It's, it's a very complicated question because it depends a lot on the genre of the game. Mm -hmm. Those are some good answers. And Rob, what do you think? How do you get past those hurdles? Um, <clears throat> I actually just did this yesterday with something. It was a checklist where I'm like, okay, this game I know is heading down the wrong path. And, you know, like I've been working intuitively, like when this be cool, when this be cool. And I just made a list of here are all the mechanics or things that I'm doing in the game. And I'm like, okay, it's like 13 things. It should be seven. And so I like bracketed and made a circle. I'm like, these four things could all go or be combined. And it's sometimes you have to like, get really analytical about like, what am I trying to do? And did I accidentally without meaning to, despite being a veteran, just put a patch, right? Did I just add a rule or something? And then I, did I do that four times? And now there's all these little loose fiddly bits that need to be sanded off. And sometimes sitting down and, and um, writing them out helps. Another thing to do is write the rules. And if the rules, you get to that point in the rules where you're like, oh, it's gonna take three paragraphs to explain this thing that usually tells you it's a bad thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Daryl? Yeah, I just want to jump on that. And I think the rules writing is an example of this. But that's bringing, you know, a new fresh pair of eyes on it. Um, that might be um, even co-designing. Maybe you're, you're at a spot where this is a good opportunity to maybe work with someone else. And then that, that injection is going to breathe new life and new questions into it. Or development. So another example is you know bringing a developer into the process because there is this messy blur of design and development and start getting the, the development questions addressed even earlier in the process if, if, if you can find ways to work with people like that. Mm -hmm. And from uh, my point of view, oftentimes what we'll do is we'll list like every single lever 
that can possibly be pushed or pulled in the game and see if we've done it yet. Have we done that? And maybe we're doing some too much. Uh, like Rob said, I, I think oftentimes we work in an additive type of methodology and we sort of just lump mechanics on top of mechanics when really we should be chopping stuff off the top and giving it a little trim to you know lower those ears a little bit but uh, all good answers to a wonderful question from isaac oh hey this one's specifically for daryl daryl listen up the answer is no okay okay well then see you later no uh, michael murray asks uh what have been the biggest challenges daryl for creating board games with a sports theme Oh, okay, that does make sense to be me. Okay, specifically, uh, specifically, specifically, how can designers reach this small niche of players and get non-sports and non-gamers to play these games? P.S. I'm rooting for fantasy, fantasy football. Yeah, well, I <laughs> I appreciate the plug, and that's probably the answer. Nobody wants them. No, um, uh, you find you find your audience, hopefully, and then uh, you make sure it's a really good game. And I was just actually I was talking to someone who has success at this, uh, Mike Fitzgerald. So he has a wonderful game that is a great game. Like it doesn't matter. Like you don't have to really like. Yes, there's a theme, but you just at the end of the day. Uh, it's infectious. So like what, when Rob was talking about, like when people sat down and they played, if they had such a good experience that they want to play again, that is going to sell the game. So I would say just make sure it's a really good game. And if you're passionate about sports and that theme works for you, just make sure it's a really good game because uh, you are you you do have a hurdle. Like you do have a potential or a potential hurdle. Now, uh, with that said, I think some sports lend themselves to crossover, uh, and there's maybe more crossover than we admit. I think kind of our our cultural tribalism is is breaking down a little bit, so lines are getting messier and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, for instance, uh, I, I think there's a bunch of sports fans out there that are also gamers, and I think there's a lot of uh, sports fans that don't know they're gamers yet, but they do a lot of gamer things. Like they like certain things. So think about like, like for instance, draft, drafting, or or trading, or um, stats and math. Like it's funny, but like that, those are commonalities. Uh, strategizing, thinking long-term plans versus short-term, high risk, high reward. Like all that kind of stuff is actually very intuitive uh, for sports fans specifically. So maybe just match your your mechanics with your audience as yeah, well I, re- so. I really do want moneyball the game by the way Can yeah i love the game i w- i will happily if gil doesn't make it first oh gil, yeah 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 so i still keep bugging gil to show me what he's making so then i will make the other version okay. right 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 <laughs> so uh this is a, a non-too serious question from dennis ku uh surprise surprise he asks in a battle royale the ma- the movie situation if you guys remember the the anime or the Japanese movie, uh, which member of the panel would survive the longest and why? It's not uh, a game design question, but I vote, okay. I vote Dylan. Why? Uh, I think he knows how he has secret secret knowledge. That, uh, I just, the beard. I yeah, I think I think Dylan. He could hide weapons in his beard. Yeah. What do you think, Rob? Who, who, who out of this panel so far would survive the longest in a battle royale situation? Uh, well, one of us has a good core by sitting on a bouncy ball. I know, right? <laughs> um, I don't know. The beard looks fearsome on both those people, but it's just something to kind of grab for the, go in for the knee, you know, the yeah. knee to the face. Although, although, although Dylan will tell you he has the perfect Aikido answer for beard grabs. 
Okay. You, so you got to train against beard grabs. It's just, you, you know, it's, it's necessity. You got to keep training <laughs> those anti-beard grab moves. Okay. I, 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 will, I will let you know that Kevin has like supreme micro skills. Like his micro is Gosu. So I don't know. He might, he might destroy us all with his, his brilliant, brilliant tactical mind. He was yeah. a He's a pro StarCraft player, so. Uh, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I'm the oldest one here, so I'd get winded first and ask for a timeout. I don't know, so. Rob. We're probably pretty close. <laughs> my asthma my asthma literally sucks. Um, okay. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. But I also do have a high degree in uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. So. You underestimate how poor my health is. <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> we're, all, we're all gamers. None of us are sitting here, like, you know, tearing up the mixed martial arts circuit. No, Maybe really I don't know. Well. I don't know you. Maybe you are. Kevin, Kevin and Sen, I. Do something. Sen and Kevin don't. Don't you both have like championships that you have won? Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, I'm you first. This. You've turned us against each other. Yeah. 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 I pull um, a hamstring. Did you? So. I know I would. I don't know who's oh. it would be, but I. That's what I would do. <laughs> Maybe not your own. Yeah. Okay. Um, we're moving through some questions here. Uh, Rob, you can have this one. Let's see here. Oh. Wow, there's a lot of questions in here. But this one says, have you, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, and actually probably we don't know a lot about it because a lot of it was probably internal at Hasbro, but how do you get over the frustration of getting signed or having a game go to a, cer a certain level of progress, maybe internally at Hasbro, and then having it die in development over creative differences? Has that ever happened? Is it frustrating? And how do you get over it's, it? It's usually not creative differences. It was usually... Um marketing or business differences right i mean it's kind of honestly hasbro would have 70 games they're putting out and you make this game they look at it and go N -n -n -n. you know what the walmart buyer wasn't really getting that one we're going to drop that one right they only have room for 50 and you're like what's wrong with it like eh, i don't know someone didn't like it along the way uh you learn to have a healthy detachment until you actually get it in your hands so mm -hmm. okay uh, Kevin, here's a question for you from Niles Breacher. What's the most challenging roadblock you overcame while designing and how did you do it? Uh, let's see. So probably the biggest hurdle with making Aeon's End was turning it from a competitive game into a fully cooperative one. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. That must have been a big brain switch. That was like four or five months of development where the core, like the core gameplay was set basically and it was just how does this become a cooperative experience rather than a competitive one? And that's really neat because uh, I was I was there at the beginning of it all, and the engine always worked. And so it's really interesting for me to hear about how it changed from an engine that worked into just using that engine in a different experience, like, like Dylan's talking about crafting an experience. So we'll have to have you on again to talk about that because that's really fascinating to me how uh indie game cards and uh, board took it from where it was to you know obviously where it is and made it into a very popular product um rob niles asks scoring that feels right quote unquote no. is often surprisingly difficult are there any helpful techniques for designing a good scoring system from rob davio no not for me <laughs> is not that, for is me. that like your achilles heel yeah, because I always wanted to be thematic, right? I always wanted to feel right, but I can go into like veer into sort of this Ameritrash, you know, like, I don't know, crush all your enemies, you know, which sometimes works, but I've been doing more co-ops and things lately. And co-ops are weird because there's usually one way to win and like four ways to lose. And so those all need to be thematic. Um, 
No, I'm just saying it because with Seafall, I went around and around. I went around and around with everything on that game. Um, I never quite was happy with where I landed. My favorite thing that I had didn't work. It was originally a timeline around the board with like, and you put different milestones. So you created the timeline of history, like in 1592, this happened in six, and it was beautiful other than the board either had to be the size of a twister mat or the actual play space had to be the size of a postage stamp. Um, I have so to that, tell you, I would play it on a twister map. Yeah, <laughs> there was a table, there was a table space issue going on there. So I had to reluctantly put that to the side. I, um, I don't know. I mean, it's nice that you can always fall back to some sort of themed version of points. And most of the time people won't be excited, but they won't pillory you for doing that. So there is a safety net. Victory um, points for the win, right? Yeah. Uh, I, uh, yeah, I don't have a good answer. If I, if one of you has one, please tell me. Anybody? Well, no? I, have an, oh. I have an answer, but not a good one. Okay, go ahead, Daryl. <laughs> I actually, I actually do try to do this in most games I design. I try to get final scores to be about a minute, a point per minute. Oh, that's interesting. That's so. I think that will always generate about the satisfying time input that you feel like you're contributing every minute of your time at the table. Neat. And I like that. Ideally, idea. ideally, if you can score in little ways throughout, and then have. A final scoring, you also have little incentives versus then also something at the end giving you more satisfaction at the end. So I am all about just this fake illusion of points so that people feel like their time was worthwhile. That's just like stripes on your karate belt. Um, yep. I, I think our answer would be thematic. So we always want somebody, we always want the winning condition or the scoring condition to be something that makes thematic sense. So if it's a financial game, the person with the most money wins, you know, that kind of thing always at least plays into our mind of it's uh, all just an illusion it's all points well actually i mean there there is one fundamental difference that i think about now is do you want the game to be over after a certain amount of time and whoever has the most of something win or do you want the first person to get the most of something to win no matter how much time it takes oh that's a good point so race versus threshold race versus threshold yeah absolutely I, yeah, those I are, mean, those are very different experiences right yeah. i would usually though match that up with what kind of game it is like there's and and uh, and if you can get the same amount of time, and it and thematically doesn't make sense to be a race, then like it's clearly going to be threshold. Like I feel like there's certain games that lend themselves to a race, right? Mm. So Kevin, here's a question from Paige West. Paige asks, "What is your process for introducing new mechanics to a work in progress?" Um, and another question from him would be, what are some of the feelings you strive to convey in your games? So one of those is about introducing new mechanics. The other one is what, how do you make feelings happen? Right. So the, the first thing with the new mechanics is the first question you should ask whenever you add something to a work in progress is why, why are you doing this? Because most games you can make them, most games that exist, you could make them better by removing mechanics. Because most true. games have extra clutter. They have things that take away, like, Coup is a great example of a game that knows exactly what it wants to be. It is a game about bluffing, and it has no mechanics that get in the way of that. And a lot of games that aren't, you know, they're okay, they're above average games, they're good games, but they're not great games, is they've got a cool thing in them. They've got a great hook. But then they've got all this other stuff that interferes with, with your enjoyment of that central theme. So the idea is, Think about when you're designing a game, what is the game really about? If it's a bluffing game, don't add mechanics that detract from the bluffing. If it's a thinky head down game, don't add a bunch of dice rolling because it conflicts with you, like with the central idea. 
-hmm. As for how to add it, I don't know. You just come up with rules and then you play a game with them and see if it works. <laughs> right. And what are some of the feelings that you strive to convey through your game specifically? Like if so, I said it was not a Kevin game, what would the feeling be that I know it's going to come out of it? So, so Rob was talking, he likes to approach things more theme heavy. I'm not, I'm not really a theme person. So the feelings that I try and convey have much more to do with what do the mechanics make you, how do the mechanics make you think? How do the mechanics make you approach the game? So with, with Aeon's End, one of the biggest overarching design goals was this needs to feel like a cooperative experience where everyone is working together. And it doesn't have as much relation to the fact that you're mages or the fact that you're fighting against this boss or the fact that you're defending the city. It's more just, this is a cooperative experience. The decisions you make and the way you play this game have to require players to work together in order to make that happen. And so we just made a lot of mechanics, a lot of design decisions that were basically, in order to get the most effectiveness out of this ability or this effect, you have to coordinate with other players. And, and that was a big step towards making that happen. Great, good answer. Um, Mike Paschal from uh, Peachtree Hobby Distribution asks this question. He says, or asks, how often do you have a theme chosen for design and the publisher totally scraps your theme? Uh, what one was the most disappointing theme scrap? Does this happen to anybody? And if so, what was disappointing about it? Has your theme been scrapped? Uh, not me, because I design pretty theme-intensive. Right. I have, one. So, I have one. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, um, I had one, um, and it was funny because I designed it totally kind of like wanting to do an Indiana Jones kind of style game. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. My, my Hex and Ladders. And, uh, and then a game came out, or two games came out from other publishers that had like almost the exact cover of what our our notes were for what we wanted for the cover. Mm -hmm. And so then we're like, whoa, okay, definitely can't do that cover. And then it was like, well, actually, if we can't do that cover, we probably shouldn't do this game theme. Uh, so then it went back to the drawing board. And I will say, like, uh, I'm really excited about the new direction, but it, it basically restarted it. So like Rob saying, like, if you, if you do change the theme, it's... Uh, it's a pretty massive, pretty massive change. So we're still making minor adjustments, but the game was signed, and then and then the 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 theme was changed. I'm still sad because I I want to make an Indiana Jones game someday, but sure. But, but I'm but I'm very Canizia, excited about the new one. Sorry, it could be anything. You could put anything on that. Yeah, there are lots of games you can throw anything on. Yeah, that's true too. Um, Kevin Adam Wise says. Uh, he uses an ever-expanding spreadsheet timeline to keep track of projects on the go, when he starts a game, what publishers have seen them, et cetera, et cetera. What do you use, uh, especially when you have lots of co-designs or you have personal projects and shared ones? How do you stay organized from a project management sense? Kevin and Rob, what do you think, yeah, Kevin? So my, my answer is real brief here. I've only made one game, and the people I worked on it were all the same people. So there's no... There's no management here. I think I think this question is more for Rob. Okay, because even the um, the current Kickstarter for the expansion is the same team, right? Same team, yeah. All Excellent. the same people work on it. You, you mentioned you're working on smaller stuff too, like even yeah. Just that's just stuff. that's just me and my girlfriend, though. We don't need gotcha. a spreadsheet to track that. <laughs> you sure? 
maybe you should maybe you should have one rob what about you with all like you have basically two companies yeah right and then you're also working freelance for uh z-man on the pandemic series well i'm not freelance that's original original design that i saw i mean i i did more freelance when i first left hasbro before i sort of right, had right, right. royalty streams coming in um i'm not super organized i'd like to be i mean it's just lists of things to do and keeping track of um you know, like what's coming up, when are playtesting opportunities, when are publishers expecting? I just sit up every, get up every morning with a cup of coffee and spend about 15 minutes organizing my day and looking at the calendar and making sure everything's in place. But yeah, I'm, I'm probably working on at least 10 games right now between two different companies in all stages of development and promotion. So keeping it organized can be a challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me, uh, I've used we use a forum specifically Jay and I and Jesse and everybody else who works with me, Scott, um, and then a lot of people are you know saying, hey, you should use Trello and you should use Slack and all these communication tools, which are great. Except I think I want to focus on just one thing and whatever whatever that tool is that works for me. I hope I find it someday. Keeps me organized, but I do like the Kanban stuff on Trello. It's kind of fun. Um, so we're actually going to say goodbye to Kevin. Kevin, we'll see you later, buddy. It was great to talk to you. Uh, will we see you at any cons this summer? Origins, Gen Con. Yeah, I'll be on Origins and Gen Con. Excellent, excellent. We'll see you there. All right, uh, let's get a couple more questions in. Thanks, actually, see you guys. I got to I got to roll as well. So see you, Kevin. Oh, okay. okay, okay. We'll see you later, Rob. Is great. I will be you. at Origins and Gen Con. So I'll great, see you. and we'll see you there. Okay. Nice to talk to you. Cool. All right. Take it easy, guys. See okay, we'll see you guys later. Bye. Bye. All right. So now that we have uh, them gone, we'll ask the cool. Do we now? The, the question is: Do we want to pause and then do an after show and do just the three of us, or just keep going? Let's just keep rolling. I can't actually stay too much longer. Jesse's okay. Can I just say that this is like the first time in a long time we're all here in the same place? I yeah. know, right? That's why I did a, a whole video. This is weird. Bring, bringing bringing the band back together. Yeah, the boys are back in town. Um, <laughs> I, I just need oh, it's funny because it's too bad that both both uh, Kevin and Rob left because the next question is about cooperative games. Um, uh, so, but this is a good question. Uh, why are all cooperative games, not all of them, but the vast majority that we see about stopping bad things from happening and getting beat down repeatedly? Why can't we have more positive focused cooperative games? Asks Mr. Niles Breacher. What do you think? Well, I'll answer. Yeah, because yeah. you would rather play competitive. <laughs> maybe, maybe. Dylan, what's your thoughts? Well, dude, anyone in a game is the good guy. Anyway. That's interesting. That's interesting because there's, there's seriously right now a thread about um, playing Nazis as the good guys in board games. Yeah. People find a way. Uh, and actually, yeah, I think I saw that one. Like, uh, Actually, there's been a couple. Uh, that I saw on, on Facebook, uh, specifically dealing with, with Nazi themes. But there, humans can go through amazing amounts of rationalization to become the good guy in the actions that they're doing. Um, I just feel that in, in most games, everyone simply considers themselves to be the good guy. Nobody, unless you're in a, a, a GM'd situation, for example. Or like a traitor. Yeah, yeah, even then, like... You can see people doing mental contortions to attempt True. to make themselves, you know, well, I was actually the good guy because I, in making a game with, uh, with my son, we have a, a trader mechanic and I was uh, playing it with a friend of mine 
and there's a there's a lord and there's a bunch of people within his retinue who are who are hidden traitors and uh, when i was playing the lord i'm like what are you doing rebelling against this perfect authority and he's like well, you are a terrible overlord and we have to but like none of there was none of that in the game none of the rules were written that's awesome it's, you write it yeah. it's just the the stuff that's in your head to rationalize yourself taking these like everyone's a good guy in a game so yeah, we do amazing uh, psychological gymnastics. That's yeah, why there's always good guys like that. And it's it's interesting that you say that because I often talk about the social contract of gaming in terms in terms of why my kids like to cheat, um, and why they love to cheat is because they can they can and they're allowed to within the context and the confines of a game system. Uh, but to answer this actual specific question about why why we particularly like stopping bad things as human beings, uh, well, I mean. If you think about the memories that you have and hold very dear to your heart, um, there are probably a very uh, few things that will be burned in your memory. Uh, for both of you, okay, so what are some of your fondest memories? Like literally the, the fondest memories you have. It'll be different for <laughs> Leroy Jen Did you just say Leroy Jenkins? No, you did something else. Um, Hero's Journey, yes. Uh, Dylan, what's your what's one of your the top memories in your head right now? Exploring a deep, dark Buddhist cave underneath a temple in Shodoshima okay. in Japan by and nothing why? except candlelight. Okay, because and it was intense. It was intense. We climbed up the side of a cliff with a couple of other kids who were my age, around 16, and we basically felt our way along the side of the cave to find a carved altar because then we would know we would have candles and then we groped around in pitch darkness for matches to light the candles and explore this completely pitch dark cave by candlelight mm -hmm. that was like there's this edge of excitement there was this unknown there was all of these different ingredients and problem solving like you i succeeded in doing this being able to see in this pitch dark those are the kind of memories that i've got that are so really intense feelings yep. of success, that kind of thing. Daryl, what about you? What are some of the memories that stick out in your mind? Well, I could cheat and have thought longer, but I tried to just stick with my first one. My first thought was actually being at a baseball game, kind of right. beginning of a, beginning of a season, everything's new, anything, you know, you're, you're a hopeless romantic because, uh, the, you know, it's a clean slate. Uh, so that was, that was my first, my first thought was just your, your, it's a communal experience together. Uh, it's str strategy that's going to happen and it's going to unfold the anticipation. So, right. And so all of these things that you're talking about are emotional, uh, and emotions kind of burn our memories into our brain. It doesn't, I mean, it's sort of like that. Um, if you want to look at the psychology of why, uh, how we remember and why we remember the things that we remember, one of the phrases I always talk to students about is, you'll remember me because I treat you nicely, not because of what I teach you, right? And it's the same thing. When we have emotions about an experience, especially like a game experience, we're going to remember those epic, epic moments where we finally beat freaking ghost stories, Antoine. Hate that game. Uh, <laughs> or, <laughs> or you know, Pandemic Legacy. Rob was just on. When you ripped up that one card that, oh, I really needed that card, or oh, my character died, or anything like that. That is the physicality and the emotionality burning that memory into your brain as something you will relive and relive and relive. 
And so when we fight back against odds that are beating us down and punishing us, those tend to be really memorable. However, I will then ca put a caveat on that, that they only become memorable if we overcome them. If we keep being punished by a game system, ghost stories, um, you probably won't remember the game fondly. You might remember it, but you'll remember it as punishment. And you, you, you think that's always true? Or no, do you think that's true with certain personalities? Um, not even certain personalities. It, it is, I would say it's relatively always true, but some people will block things out. Some people will, like if you look at, um, Tanya will probably know stuff, stuff about like trauma-informed memory and stuff like that. Yeah, so, I've done trauma. Yeah, so yeah, 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 of course, right? And um, it's the same kind of idea that, you know, those really high intense emotional moments will ha stand a much better chance anyways of becoming memories. And I think we, we trend towards that in game design because we do want to craft experiences. We want to craft a memorable experience. Um, so, I mean, if you ask your average person out there who plays games, but average, and you ask them, what's Hanabi about? What would they say? Backwards cards. Yeah. Fireworks. Oh, there you go. Right. It's fireworks. The theme is fireworks. fireworks. Right. But if you ask somebody, okay, pandemic, what's pandemic about? Disease spreading. <laughs> right. So there's a much more emotional value in in the pandemic idea than there is in Hanabi. Uh, does it make either a better game or a worse game? But one is probably going to have more memorable experiences towards it. That's all. Right. There are yeah. reason why there are the reasons why there are story and narrative archetypes. Ah, uh, yes, that that is exactly what David the whole, is saying. The whole thing about hero's journey, man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and <laughs> I like David's non-verified fact of fifteen to thirty-three percent <laughs> success rate. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, so yeah, that that's a really good good question and an interesting answer from the team. Um, what do we think here, Beth? Beth, one of my favorite artists in game Landopia, Beth Sobel, asks, uh, what's your favorite player account to design for? And what is your least favorite game mechanism to design around and why? Uh, Dylan, what's your favorite player account to design for? Two. Two? Two. That's, that's, I don't see that as... I, I wouldn't have thought that about you. Nah, well, okay, there's the whole... Is that like the battle... Is it's, that like a fighting in you, like the the strategic line? It's more. It's more that I really, really, really like asymmetrics. Really like asymmetrics. And if you can build an asymmetric with more players, then holy crap, more power to you. If you can honestly do that, then then great. Um, I really enjoy asymmetrics. So what I'm designing with my son, I was telling you about asymmetric. Just the the stuff. The stuff that I'm working on right now is it's just all asymmetric. And that's, mm. that's why I like it. And I also have new playtesters. So it's useful to have only two players in your games when you uh, haven't been So really them. you're saying you'd like to design for more because you haven't been doing that lately? I could when I'm back in Canada. Let's, okay. let's when, leave it at that. And, and when will that be, by the way? I have no idea. Yeah, neither do we. Uh, Daryl, what's your least favorite game mechanism to design around? Deck builder. Really? I more think so. so. Oh yeah, I know you hate them, but more so than like player elimination. No, oh, I like player elimination. Yeah, I don't weird. find that I can do it well, but 
Yeah. But I, I find it a really fascinating it is, choice. Right. Um, I don't I don't do it because I don't I don't think I make quick enough games to get away with it, but mm-hmm. neat, neat, neat. Uh, Beth also asks, how do you consider accessibility in your designs? How do you consider inclusivity and representation in your design? That's funny. And then she asks, what's the best dessert? That one's obviously for Dylan. Uh, so Dylan, we'll start with you. What's the best dessert? Oh, there are so many. <laughs> how do you pick the best dessert? <laughs> how do you pick, I don't honestly, know. How do you pick the not, best? Not Chinese desserts. My, my wife. Maybe is, shrink it down to like pies, best pies. What was oh, awesome today is like my wife is just sitting, sitting at, at her computer after dinner. I'm washing the dishes and she's like, did you know that you could put, you know, creme fraiche in this? Did you know that you could put it in this? Did you? You, you <laughs> can kind of put creme there. fraiche in anything, anything. And it'll be good. But like, uh, no, and fromage blanc and stuff like that. But um, I never liked millefeuille in uh, Canada, but holy crap, millefeuille here is absolutely incredible. Why? What do they do different? They just French it somehow. I have no idea. <laughs> it's just like they French it. <laughs> They, they touch it, it with their French hands and it becomes French. And it's like 200 times better. And that's like a number. That's actually a real number. I'm sure I read it somewhere. Verifiable. Not verifiable like number. 99.9% verifiable that simply being French makes millefeuille taste better. And okay. you can pronounce it, which is pretty yeah. good. Yes, it is. Uh, Daryl might not be able to. Daryl, how do you can how do you add accessibility or consider accessibility in your designs? What have you been doing lately to add to that? Yeah, you know what? This is an interesting conversation. I've just been having this conversation around a game that John Gilmore and I co-designed a small card game series. Uh, the first one being Outpost Siberia. Oh and- yeah, that one. Um, and the interesting thing is, so the characters, like we're talking about, like each character in the game and who are we going to include? And there's this tension of, you know, you want to put people that could survive, mm-hmm. um, while at the same time you want to make it kind of like this real life. Like what if these were all like scientists at, a at, you know, some outposts trying mm-hmm. to survive, um, you know, what representation do you make? And do you make it that it could be any cross section of who could do that job? Or is it that you make the presumption of who will likely survive and those are the characters you are? Um, so that's, that's a great question. I don't have an answer for it. For us, one of the things is obviously we communicated that we want we want diversity. So, I mean, basic things that, that clearly don't make a difference. It doesn't matter if it's a man, woman. It doesn't matter race. It doesn't matter, you know, a wide spectrum of age. Um, even wide spectrum of uh, if there were any disabilities. But at the same time, even something like, say, um, disabilities, there are some that we, it was funny, we started drawing or getting certain characters out and there was a bit of a pushback or tension. Like, are we making fun of, or are we being preachy or, or, uh, or um, I don't even know what the word is, but like, for instance, because we're like, yeah. And so there's this this tension of like, you know, we don't want to come across as then like we use the example of like, oh, okay, well, uh, say a wheelchair. Yep. But then we have these adventures doing certain things that would be actually quite restrictive and yep. and not p- possible. But we want to be representative. But then we tried to look at examples where it's done well, like so someone like Xavier where 
you know, there's a universe and a circumstance where someone, uh, it, it makes sense, it fits, it's part of just the whole universe and world is built around different people's strengths having nothing to do with also their limitations. And that it's just a cross-section of, of, of people that then have unusual abilities. And so I think it's really important at, at, for us to all ask the questions of like, is this, is this uh, you know, a fair representation versus trying to push an agenda in any direction? And that I would have a problem if someone pushed an agenda like, oh, every every one of these has to be a woman because we need to compensate for all the male characters in every game. Uh, that's not my hope either. My hope is that we actually just aim for like this real practical solution. Like let's just. So, so you're talking about authenticity versus. Authenticity. That's yeah. the word. Yeah, Dylan. Uh, I want to jump in because uh, I think that media, to a degree, blinds us to the amount of diversity that's around us, right. and we simply don't naturally notice it. Like it, we, it's just it's just not there. If you stop and look and see around you, all of the really interesting people doing interesting things around you, uh, for just a moment, you'll realize that inclusivity is actually it, it's reasonably easy. The, uh, the 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 point is just just to see it there, uh, but talking about getting different players into games. When I mean, you were talking about scientists, when I'm when I was walking around the hallways of of uh, CNRC in Ottawa, like there's every kind of person imaginable there. Exactly. Really, there is a just huge variety in well everything. They they all look different. They all they're all dressed different. They all have these um, what must be incredible backstories. Uh, but go to an emergency room. Every kind of person is there. Mm -hmm. And anyone who's worked in an emergency room will tell you the guys who faint at the first sight of blood are going to be those 18-year-old men. Mm -hmm. And the, the people who are completely made out of iron are grandmas. Like, they, mm -hmm. they can take any amount of pain. You know, the, the, we, can, we, can throw, we can put grandmas into games. We can put iron grandmas into games. We can put all sorts I, of I different I am totally types. making a game that's called Iron Grandmas. Iron right Grandmas. There. But, like, yeah, we just have to open our eyes to the fact that there's, there's just diversity everywhere, and we're blind to it. And there's yeah. so many interesting stories around us, and we're, we're just not asking to hear them. Yeah, and I think that's the problem. But the solution isn't necessarily tokenism, and it's not necessarily forcing an agenda. Um, I think, I, I mean, kudos to games like One Deck Dungeon, where all the people in it are female. Uh, to kind of fly in the face of what Daryl was saying, you know, about, you know, where all people are women just because to... Yeah, exactly. It, it all comes down to motivation. You, you can do that, and that's great. Yeah, um, sure. And I think it's wonderful if you do. Uh, I don't think anybody should be forced to do that. However, and I don't think anyone should do it for that agenda. I think it's just why couldn't it be a bunch of females? Like, yeah. go for it. But yeah, um, uh, oh, the accessibility issue of design uh, as opposed to inclusivity and representation. So uh, definitely, if you're designing a game that has colors, mm -hmm. <laughs> check your colorblindness um, apps and programs. There's several out there. They're not all created equally. In fact, just get people who. Are colorblind. There's, it's a roughly 10% of the male population will have some level of colorblindness. So one in 10 of your male friends will. Like I don't even know if this is true, but I feel like it's even higher in the gamer community. I think half of us are just color ignorant. Yeah, like, that maybe that's be, what that happens. might be a true too. And different lightings. So yeah, yeah. the best way to do this, uh, in ex by experience, is to codify 
by at least three ways. So shape, <laughs> color, and then uh, icon. If or, possible, uh, do that. If possible. Symbol color, yeah. symbol. I always do symbol yeah. color. There's going to be, yeah. Associated and do it even symbol. from a prototype level because that's going to yeah, remind yes. the yes. publisher that that's a priority. It's hard to introduce that later on because, you know, publishers might just move on and not think about that. But I think that's a really practical thing that you need to already think ahead. How are you going to communicate yeah. this in a few different ways? And then font size. I mean, if you're going below nine point font, you've yeah. done, done something wrong. Yeah. That's pretty small. Um, Andy Jewett is going to make us an Iron Grandma's t-shirt. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, awesome. I'm telling him you need to do that, Andy. Andy, go do it. Because uh, that would be super awesome. Um, especially if it was, yeah, yeah. That would be great. I would just, I'd love that. Um, other things, other questions quickly before we have to go, before we have to go. Um, yeah, are still going. There's more, man. I can no, go but I thought, I thought you had to go. I do and I don't. Okay. Uh, 4.30. Uh, so seven more minutes. Variable setup. When to use it, when not to from Niles. What do you think? I know Daryl's answer. Sorry, I didn't even hear the question, so I don't know oh, my sorry. answer. Uh, variable setup. When do you use it? When don't you? Oh, what's my answer? Well, I, your answer is your your answer is typically uh, make the first play the best experience ever. Okay, yeah, I am stereotypical. <laughs> well, no, you no, you're Daryl Daryl typical. All right, but that that's I because I didn't used to believe that quite the same way. But Daryl actually turned the light on in my head and said, "Yeah, send." It's got to be the best first play. And the reason why is based on statistics from the industry that say, you know, most games get played. What is it, Daryl? A 1.7 or something, I think. Yeah, yeah it's 1.4, 1.7 times. That's it. And so the very first play has to be the best play. And the problem that a lot of people try to, um, when they try to put in too much variable stuff in, is you end up with a kind of random, mediocre first play as opposed to yeah. a cultivated experience. Oh, yeah. look, it's Jesse. Hey. Jesse's waving in the background. Uh, we're on our way to design night. Come Make in. him answer a question, damn it. Yeah. OK, here, yeah. Cameo, here. Time. Cameo time for Jesse. Jesse, sit down. What? You got to answer a question. You got to answer a question? Jesse, on the spot, answer this question. Jesse on the spot. I love it. Jesse on the spot. That's That, that has a, a nice sound to it. It does have a nice sound to it. All right. Read the uh, question. All right. Jonas Lindstrom wants to know your opinion on solo modes and or games. Oh, good. Good person to ask. Interesting. Yeah. So um, I am a solo game player, so I'm a bit biased in this regard. Uh, I think solo games are excellent and good to have around. Although I think uh, solo modes probably should aim at uh, quicker to set up, quicker to play, because usually... That's kind of where I want them to be. Um, and in general, I haven't seen a lot of good cases where there is a game that has that is designed for multiplayer with a good solo mode or vice versa. So in my opinion, I think you should just commit to either making a solo game or a multiplayer game and then really design into that. Interesting. I need you, I need you to play Sagrada. It's my, my f a solo mode because I think it's okay. the, the closest I've ever felt where it was a good experience both ways but i would agree with you i have not found a game to really shine at doing both yeah i think well, it, i think it's always a response you know someone designed something one way or the other and then they try to breach the other direction 
Yeah, and as a bonus opinion, I find the same is generally true for two-player games as well. One and two players seem to be modes that are just best designed for specifically and not tried to shoe in. Excellent. That's a good, uh, that was a good answer. Um, you want to pull another one out and then choose Dylan or I for the question? All right. <clears throat> Niles Breacher asks Daryl, when do you consider a design to be done? Uh, you know what? I've actually been moving on this. Uh, so I used to be of the mindset that uh, a design was never going to be done. And so a publisher should get involved earlier so that they can help uh, influence the final steps, the final direction. But I would say that I'm actually changing a bit on this. I used to, I think practically, I just don't think that happens very much. I don't think a lot of publishers want to be involved earlier they want a done product. Um, and when I say a done product, I mean beyond even just a done design game. So game development and game design is different from product design. I think a lot of publishers are actually looking for finished products. And so that means you not only need to figure out the design, but you need to fit, figure out even the last 10%. Um, so I'm more and more of the mindset of design a game all the way till it's finished and then expect that that 10% that you spent probably the longest time working on is going to be modified anyways. And it's just an inefficient way that the industry works. So It kind of is. <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, I think it would be way better if a, if a publisher was like, I love the 80 to 90% that's already designed, and could you finish it in this direction and commit to the designer and commit to the game at that stage? I think design would be so much more efficient and productive but i just think that um because of the oversaturated market that publishers are in a power position where they can demand games that are finished it potentially saves them a lot of money because they don't have to be involved in that last part and there's less risk because they don't have to commit to a game until it's finished yeah i, I think that's the way they want it to be yeah I and that's the way it should be but yeah no i, I agree i don't think that's the way it should be but i have learned the hard way that people really want to see a game a lot farther done than I originally thought. Yeah. Dylan, any, any input on that? Uh, no. When I, when I used to, to draw a lot, I would force myself, because I, I think that this is kind of the direction that the, that the question was going, was more how do you kind of get your claws off of it rather than kind of uh, do, you know, do you know that it's finished? I would force myself to sign it, and then once it was signed, I wasn't allowed to touch it ever again. It's like I know in my That's head, I yeah. know in my head, I will never let that illustration go. I will never let it go. But as soon as that ritual's done, yeah, the circle is closed. Oh, <laughs> there is I like no that. That's you neat. Have to, like there yeah. just has to be a psychological separation. Yeah, no, that's very healthy. I think that that's a great idea. Is fi figure out a ritual of where and when you need to let something go, and then don't let yourself go back because. Yeah, we'll always keep tinkering, but there's a healthy point where you need to just walk away, start working on the next thing. Mm -hmm, definitely. Um, another question, probably the last question we can do today, the last, uh, yes. but it's a good one. It'll probably last us a little bit. Uh, Niles asks, actual balance versus perceived balance. How do you balance, pun intended, these two factors? Mm. Oh, dude, can I just mention... Uh, when I was down in GDC, I'm pro I've probably told this before. I was down in GDC and I was at a, at a customer, like a, a, a player experience panel. 
and they're talking video games. So it's like all visual, audio, all that kind of stuff. And so when they said, okay, well, let's try this gun with all the same stats, only we'll make the explosion bigger. All of their playtesters play would say, this gun is way overpowered. It's completely off the charts. Like we can't use this thing in the game anymore. But they hadn't changed any of the stats at all, like at all. So like perception of the power of something, is, it could be just the way you play or just, you know, in the case of a video game, just the way it looks on the screen. But um, yeah, at, there's loads and loads of people who are new to games who will play something like role selection in Puerto Rico and be like, well, why doesn't everyone always choose the shipping? Like, why doesn't everyone always do this every single turn? Like, it just makes sense. And that perception, maybe it lasts a couple plays, but only if those plays happen. If they start out thinking that that particular role or whatever is overpowered or perceive that it's overpowered, even if you have the most perfect fine balance, um, maybe the second play was just won't happen. Mm -hmm. I'll approach this from a, like a chess or jujitsu analogy. Uh, so Andy will get it and Kevin would get it. Um, that when when you're when you're playing strategically or when you're doing something strategic where you have an overall funnel a pathway that you're going down and you force people um i often talk about sidelines so daryl daryl the football guy uh for football why do why do people run along the sidelines what do you mean why do they yeah so why does why does like a, a wide receiver run down the sidelines and not down the middle of the field uh, well, there's there's multiple strategic reasons, but the main reason might be to stop the clock. When you've received the ball, you want to step out and stop the clock. Okay, okay, so that's part of it. But the other part is that they know they can't be hit from one side, right? Sure. So, right. So that's the that's the kind of strategic point that I'm getting at. Um, is and that goes towards Dylan's point that when you when you balance something, uh, or if you only play a certain way, so that you're strategically cutting off avenues which is how some people play in a control kind of, of way, then you actually don't see the full effect of the game, which is what I think Dylan's getting at, that you haven't played through all the aspects of it. And so my answer to the question in a really roundabout way is playtesting. That's kind of how you balance. Um, I can mathematically balance something, but then when you get perceived issues in there and feel and how it actually interacts with the gameplay and the flow of gameplay, the timing of gameplay actually makes things change in terms of phases, in terms of cost at phase. That's where the play test actually comes to a real head and really gives me the information I need to say, yes, that was awkward overpowered or no, that needs to be costed a little differently or we need to change the perception. One thing we're going through right now with one of our card games is that we have these effects that are persistent, but they're kind of wussy. They're kind of little wussy effects that are persistent in the game. And so nobody wants to play them. And so we said, okay, let's up the impact of them. But then we kind of had to up the cost. And then people were like, well, this costs too much to play this. And so some of it's playtesting, some of it might be granularity, and some of it might just be letting it go and just kind of go with what people want to do because typically that leads you down the right path. Uh, so if the game system supports the fun that people want to have with the game, you're kind of at least trending in the right direction. What do you think about balance, Daryl? Uh, yeah, I would, I would add two things. I mean, I agree with what you guys are saying. I would add um, one of the things that I'm learning is actually maybe go over the top instead of under. 
So that, that's that's the Kevin Nunn theory. Yeah, well, let's, let's I, name all our theories after different designers. Um, I find <laughs> I it's funny. Eric Lang uh, got referenced for the top corner in yeah, uh, yeah. a JR post recently, and then a whole bunch of people got really mad and started calling dibs on other theories, like um, cubes with numbers on them. I want I want dibs on that, and like. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I regress. Um, but uh, I would say, yeah, ratchet up uh, instead of ratchet down. The reason is because a game is supposed to be most of the time for fun. I mean, I realize there's other expressions that you're going for, but uh, it feels cool to do big things and do cool things. Yeah. So, as long as the general, math doesn't get too difficult, right? In general, like if you can ratchet it up, then your turn feels more awesome. So I'm trying to do that more often instead of like, let's get there in a real subtle, cute way. Let's instead be like, Bam! That was fun. Um, that, that kind of suits you too. Yeah, you know, big and bold and brassy. Something, trying, trying. Uh, something because... that does it. Sorry. Oh no, no, go for it, Dylan. No, no, something that does that great. I got to say, is Super Motherload. Um, the the way that they make turns big without making them like overpowered yep. is uh, just the chains. The chains are the big thing in, in Super Mother Load. And you can have a huge turn and lose the game and still be like, ah, oh, man, that was awesome. I made a big play. Damn, yeah, because you feel super clever. Exactly. When it happens. Or you feel you've hit, literally hit the Mother Load. You <laughs> hit the Mother Load. Yeah, the, so. the other thing that I, I was going to mention, and I think this ties into playtesting, um, is also uh, building and trusting a designer intuitive. Um uh, and intuition, uh, because I th- I think over time, and probably one of the reasons rookies struggle with this is that you you don't trust yourself well enough, and and maybe for good reason, um, on on what decision to make, because it feels like there's so many out there. But as you gain a taste and and a feel for the experiences you're trying to create, then trust it. You know, the, you developed this for a reason, and so. Yes, you're not. Oh well, maybe Sen is a human spreadsheet, but most people aren't. Uh, but they they have a feeling of the math, and so trust that. Like process. Mm-hmm. Like if this feels more powerful than that, and just even just like rearrange your cards and be like, which ones do I want more? Which ones do I want less? Is the granularity good or is this too extreme? Like I'll always choose this. I'll always complain with that. Well, then how could I ratchet this up in a different way? Or how could a choice like could I get two of these or one of these? All that kind of stuff wrestle with uh so that the game is quote-unquote balanced but it's not just some mathematical equation with an equal symbol yeah and i think there's a good point in uh where maybe where you're going or where you were kind of going with that is that there's the difference between balance and balance um in that you can be mathematically balanced and the game feels entirely stale Uh, but you can have balance on a card within part of a system so that you don't have to balance everything all the time within everything in the game. You just have to make sure it's balanced with other things that it is comparable to yep. or compared with or used at the same time or bought from the same set. That's really what you have to do. And then figure out how that all interplays. As you were talking, Daryl, I was thinking about Iron Curtain um, mm-hmm. and, and how much balance had to go into that to really get the, the real push-pull that you wanted in terms of control of the, of the gates or the 
toll booths or whatever we want to yeah, call yeah. them. The checkpoints. Checkpoints. There's a good picture. Checkpoints. Um, so anyway, uh, that is literally all the time we have. Like it is 437. Yes. I gotta run. The kids are here. Jesse's here. Uh, and so I gotta go. But I will say this. This was a super fun experience. We haven't done uh, questions from a hat ever. And I liked where all these random questions kind of led us. It was really neat. What do you think? Uh, what do you think, Dylan? Was it fun? It was fun. I mean, just yes, they completely random blindsided, and I wasn't allowed. I wasn't able to run down the side of the field so that I couldn't get hit from one side. So you know, it was from all over the place. Way to tie but, it all in. Uh, hey, that's what I'm here for, right? Yeah. Um, the uh, but that's that. It, it was really good, and like uh, being able to take a whole loads of different topics lets us connect them together in many different interesting ways, which is yet another good way to uh, to look at designs. Yeah, it's, it's, it's actually, um, oddly enough, so one of the biggest tests of intelligence that we use today is not like, you know, like IQ something, right? But it's really making those links between seemingly disparate things that really has a lot to do with how fluidly intelligent you are. And I think game designers are able to, to master that to some degree, right? So The capacity to summarize is probably the heart of intelligence. Yeah. Uh, Daryl, what do you think of all these wild, weird questions that came out of left field? Yeah, fun to be on the other side. So uh, I appreciate it. I, I think we'll have to incorporate it in the rotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was great seeing all of our friends from around the industry. We had Doug Bass here. We had Jesse in my house, uh, who's also been in Dylan's house and Daryl's house. Dylan's house oh. in France. There's Jesse right there. Hi, Jesse. Uh, we had uh, Rob Davio. We had Kevin Riley. We had uh, Adam Rostica. Um, so we had a bunch. Jonathan Lavely. Jonathan Lavely. Yeah, we had a bunch of people here talking to us about their answers to some very specific questions that our viewing audience had for us. So we've got like a whole bunch more. Uh, we'll keep asking you guys to send in questions maybe every, you know, 50 episodes or so. Yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll collect I think them. it's a good thing. Yeah, we'll collect them. Uh, and it's been super awesome seeing you all again, Daryl and Dylan. This is the first time in probably about five weeks when we've all been here at the same time yeah. due to our travel schedules and work schedules. So with that note, Daryl, I'll leave you to sign off as I get everything set up. That's right. Well, thank you, everyone, for the questions. Thank you for interacting with us in the Q&A time. If you're looking to find us online, you can find us on Twitter at Meeple Syrup. Uh, you can find us online at themeeplesyrupshow.com. You can find us on YouTube, iTunes. Please uh, binge watch or binge listen to those episodes that uh, you have missed. If there's a special guest that you really want to hear from. And also let us know if you have any future episodes of guests or topics that you'd like to hear about. We would love to interact with you. So with no further ado, keep making great games. We look forward to playing them soon. No, Ciao. a little further ado. A little. a little further? A little further ado? Something like that. There's the info. <laughs>